So as we're going down, I'm going to say a word. And I want you to be totally honest with the word I'm going to be. I want to know what comes to your mind when I say this word in a flash. Okay? All right? I, I don't want you to think about it. So I'm not going to give you a lot of time. So I'm going to basically say, okay, here's the word. I'll give three seconds and I'm going to say stop. And I want you to tell me what comes to your mind. I want you to be honest. Okay? Are you ready? No? <laughs> three, two, one. Success. Stop. What came to mind when I said that word? Money. Okay. Thank you for being honest. What else? Sorry? Health. Okay. Power. Winning. Wealth. Achievement. Accomplishments. Failure. <laughs> Failure. That's good. That's good. I want you guys to remember, okay? Just remember this, all right? Because we're going to be talking about it. I titled today the message, The Sufficiency of Loss. Okay? The Sufficiency of Loss. Now, that is what people call an oxymoron. Okay? And that is that how can loss be sufficient? Right? How can it be? I mean, we just went through an exercise where I said success is all these things. Yet, how can loss be sufficient or adequate or abundant? Enough. How can loss be enough? It's a paradox. The Bible is full of paradoxes. And what happens is when I said the word success, it had nothing to do with loss except for one person. All of them were about gain gain whether it's ideas or power or money talent career <laughs> you know I, uh, I've, I've worked with youth and, and young adults a lot uh, many times throughout uh, these years these past uh, few decades um, and I'm always astonished how they struggle with some of the messages that they get. And they get them from us. Right? For me, you know, we stress so much about good grades. We stress so much about, you know, becoming somebody, getting a degree or some kind of something in life. We're always fretting about that as an example. How much effort do we put in in the same way about have you heard from the Lord? How's your path? How's your journey? How are you doing? Are you struggling? I point this out only because I want you to realize how much we're impacted by culture. We ask our young people 
these days in our society, and I'm included in this because I'm as guilty as you are, to put off God-designed, God-purposed events in their life for career. Wait until you have your career. Wait until you have a stable job. Wait. Really? We've been affected by culture. We have. I realize that. As my kids got into that age, I started to ask myself, what have I been doing? That's just one aspect. I'm just pointing out something that's close to me that I can speak about that I truly am grappling with. Nowhere in the Bible does it say to our children that when you get to young adulthood, we're going to send you off to study for five to ten years and then you can get married. It actually says that when you're ready and you can't wait, get married. Better to get married than to burn. Right? It's just an example. Guys, I'm guilty as you are, falling into this trap. And we've designed everything for them to get married later. And the later they get married, and you know, we make excuses around, you know, the divorce rate is lower when you wait, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's actually not the case. Statistics don't show that actually. Really, what makes the difference? is something totally, totally different. What makes a difference is whether you have God in your life or not. That's what makes the difference. That's what makes the difference. And that's just one example. Career and all these things. I ask you this, as, as a parent, I've been, I've been grappling with this and it's saying, what would I rather have? A doctor and a lawyer in the house? Or whether I have somebody who chooses any job they want, does whatever they want, can sufficiently provide for them, but are serving the Lord with all their heart, mind, and strength? What would I rather have? And so that changes my priorities, right? That automatically, as a parent, I start to fret less about their career and start to fret more about their walk. I start praying about things differently. Of course, careers are important and having a job and, and being able to provide for your family and all those things are important. But we are in a culture that shapes us, whether we like it or not. Forbes, you know, everybody knows about Forbes, either the magazine or the company founded by Malcolm Forbes. He basically said, he who dies with the most toys wins. <laughs> We've heard that. And, and we know we're so affected by the, uh, the U.S. I mean, the whole world is, right? I mean, they are such a powerful organization, not only from their wealth and media, but even, even the church. American churches have huge money that are able to, to build satellites and TV and just go all over the world. The United States also with 
what they've, what they've become, where they've come from. I mean, in the Constitution, it talks about the pursuit of happiness. What does that mean? Well, it's so individualistic, and the whole world is starting to shift into that space. And it's all about my growth, my improvement, my fulfillment, my definition of who I am. It's getting a little crazy out there these days. People are even starting to want to define themselves like an animal or something. Yeah, it's about our rights. And how it's actually taken a dangerous uh, stance where people are even starting to want to control what you think and what you say. It's getting to that point. It's no longer subtle influences through media and entertainment. It is now very deliberate influences where people are even afraid to speak out and voice their opinion. It's getting that difficult. And so what do we do? Do we succumb to that? Do we succumb to individualism, capitalism? Do we just seek power and wealth and ignore everything? And maybe through power and wealth and influence, maybe we can do something about it? Well, let's look at Solomon. He had power. He was given godly wisdom, the gift of wisdom. He had a kingdom like no other in Israel's history. People flocked to him. He had so many wives because kingdoms just wanted to marry him to, to have favor, trading, trading partners. I mean, one of the things that we continue to forget is where God put Israel. On one side is the sea. On the other side is the desert. And then you have all these empires to the south, Egypt and beyond, and you have all these empires to the north and east. What does that mean? And then there's this little sliver of land. It means they all went through that little sliver of land. And that little sliver of land was contested many, many times over. Because people wanted to control that as a trade route. And you ask yourself, why did God do that? Why do you think? If you have to travel through the land in which God's people are, you're going to have to stop in their villages. You're going to have to interact with them. You're going to know what they believe. God was actually using that geographic location for a purpose. And so Solomon was one of the greatest kings that was able to prosper from that. But look what happened to Solomon. With all that power, all that influence, it went to his head and he started to, he admits it himself, he started to actually experiment with the worship of other gods through his wives. Experiment with sin, just, just to feel what it's like. Isn't that crazy? What wealth does to you? You might say, oh, it's crazy. Why would Solomon do that? Just look at Hollywood. Right? Perfect example of what wealth does to us. Finally, and thankfully, we believe that Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, and Solomon finally comes to his senses. 
In Ecclesiastes 1-2, he says, Oh, vanity, all is vanity, vanity of vanities. What does vanity mean? It's basically pride in your own appearance and your accomplishments. He was basically declaring that he is vain. And then in Ecclesiastes 2.17, he even goes even a step further. He goes, I hated my life because I went after things. I created things, and what are they? They're like wind. They're worthless. You can be the Forbes or the Trumps of this world, the Solomons of this world, but in the end, you die, you become dust, and whatever is left behind goes to somebody else. That's exactly what Solomon said. That's what he figured out. And the only thing that lives on is the memory of who you touched, who you loved, who you lived with and shared memories with. That is what lives on here. And what lives on is your spirit with the Lord. Nothing physical. Nothing physical at all. So, if all these things are a trap, what's the opposite to this? What's the opposite to this? Well, this is what God calls us to. You know, we have people running around these days in university, you know, like they're all, it's funny. Um, you know, we're all worried about the Marxist ideology and the cancel culture, and, and it's, it's quite aggressive, actually. It's more aggressive than in my time. But guys, I was a good little communist myself. Some of you might even remember what FMLN was, right? In El Salvador. I used to have a t-shirt that said FMLN. You know, for the, the, the communists of Central America. I used to walk around the university with Che Guevara, you know, on my, on my chest. Socialism ruled. Capitalism is evil. You know, that's, that's what I believed. You know, take from the rich and give to the poor. Let's all be Robin Hood. I mean, you guys hear it on TV all the time. It still goes on. It still goes on. And when I started working, I saw how much tax came off my paycheck. That sort of resolved. Because <laughs> I didn't see the money that was taken. I didn't see it being applied to where I thought it should be. So I learned pretty fast. And, and actually, most do by the time they actually start working. If, if they get a job these days, if they start working and see how much money comes off their paycheck and they start to question where does it all go, then they start to, most of them start to realize what's going on. But we're called to be different in a very different way, and it's not about a paycheck. It's not about a paycheck. We are actually called to be countercultural. We are. We are called to be the odd person, the weird ones. You know, the weird ones. <laughs> it's funny. When I became a Christian, one of the things that God took away right away right away, is swearing. And oh my goodness, I had a mouth. Oh, I don't think there was a sentence that didn't have a swear word in it. I, the teachers, I mean, and I, was, I was bad news in high school. I was very bad news. You know, whatever, whatever you think kids do, I did. 
and probably worse. I mean, we were so crazy that our friends, when we would go out and, and we, would, we would party, sometimes a few of us would switch uh, neighbors' cars. You know how you park in your driveways? We'd literally pick it up, dump, pick it up, and then put it back. And then we tried to stay up, but we'd never stay up. We'd always fall asleep to just watch the faces the neighbors come out and see their cars switched and wonder if they're the ones who made the mistake. <laughs> crazy, we were crazy. Absolutely crazy. But God calls us to be countercultural, and so that was one of the things, you know, sometimes there's certain things that God took away from me right away, and there's other things he made me struggle with. And what was interesting is one of the things was the swearing. It took it right away from me. And I never felt like swearing ever again. And I started to notice as I got to work and work with people, like, and, and I don't criticize people for swearing, you know, and sometimes they, they, they just know I don't swear. They just know I don't swear. So sometimes I go, oh, sorry, Julio. I'm not going to tell you how to speak. You know, some of my closer colleagues, I say, if you want to go swear, go ahead and swear, but... I'm not going to impose myself on you, but if you're feeling like you shouldn't swear, then good, then you shouldn't swear. And then 30 years later, after that happened, I met another Christian, and he would let out a bomb once in a while. I remember I'm, I'm going, man, you know, like, and, he'd see, and you see, once you declare you're a Christian, you know, and you let out a bomb, it's like, I'd be in the meeting and I'm going, and then after a, after a few of those, he goes, yeah, okay, I got to work on that. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, man. Like, we go out and we have, we, we have a meal and we pray for the meal and we go to church every week and you let out a bomb at work, like, uh, I, it just doesn't go. But you see, the Lord worked, and, and we talked, the Lord worked on different things with him than he worked on with me. And I guess when I came along, the Lord started working on that with him. And this just comes to how God treats us. But we are different. And even though he sometimes made a mistake and let out a bomb, people knew he was different. He was kind, he was gentle. He wasn't perfect. I'm sure I wasn't perfect either. Because I'm an impatient boss. I'm kind of impatient, people say. They say I'm an impatient boss. I think I'm very patient. <laughs> you know. But if you don't get it, I'm going to make sure you know I, you don't get it. You know, like, I guess maybe that's why, I, you know, I, I sometimes have to do feedback, and I, I go, Lord, help me to be more gentle. And I think the Lord has helped me with this. This is one area that I wasn't very gentle. But I would be the type of boss that sometimes when I give feedback, people would cry. And so I'd come home and I'd say, I'd say to Helen, say, I don't understand. They cried. And these are guys. I go, what did I say? Now that's less and less and less as time goes on as God has made me more gentle. But there are just certain things about us that are different. But we're not all the same. But we're all called to be different. And people will notice that not perfect. 
And the reason why I say this is because sometimes we strive to be perfect with human effort. And we've got to be careful of that. Leslie Nelson, who is the president of Tyndale and is a pastor, has been a pastor in many churches, once said to me, he goes, when I was working with urban ministry, and he says, oh, I love urban ministry. I said, why? Because they bleed on the outside. Whenever I'm involved in suburban ministry, they bleed on the inside, and it's so hard to figure out how to help them. His point was, when you work with people in the downtown, their problems are in your face, and they're not afraid to tell you. <laughs> I told you that story not too long ago, a month or two ago, about the guy who comes in dressed in a bikini because he's a transvestite prostitute. I know exactly what's going on. There's no hiding it, and he doesn't hide it either. Goes, Julio is, is dressing up like a woman and wanting to be a woman wrong? Like, this was what he asked me. That was an interesting conversation. That was a very interesting conversation. And, it, and before all of this, it was like 10 years ago. Are we ready to have those conversations in love and compassion? Are we? If somebody came through those doors right now, a guy dressed in a bikini and makeup, a guy came in through those doors, how would you react? how would you react? In order to shift us to where God wants us to be, I think there's no other better place than the Sermon on the Mount. You see, we have a different ethos, which means character and essence of who we are. And that should transcend everything we do. And on the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, Jesus proclaimed this. Let me read, read the scripture and you can follow along. And it says, he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hung and thirst for righteousness. Not those that are righteous, those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It says, blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. On my account, he says. Rejoice and be glad. Be happy. Be happy. Be joyful, be content, 
for, they, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All of these are paradoxes. All of these are paradoxes. And for me, I know there's a lot of people that have studied this, but for me, there is an important structure to this. An important structure to this. There are nine declarations of blessed here. Almost like the fruits of the Spirit. There is a three-by-three relationship. And I believe that there are three sections with three different statements within it. And today, I want to talk about the first three blessed statements. There is a triad here. And there is a purpose behind the three first ones, the, the second three, and the final three. And there's a very interesting purpose for the last one. But we're not going to have time to go through all of them. We're going to go through the first three today, today only. Because the first three are where talk about what shapes our ethos and our character. The word blessed is a translation that's used uniquely with Christians. But if you look at the Greek word and how it was applied outside, it was actually used to describe greatness, richness. Remember I said success? That was the word used. They would apply this word to people who are powerful, pagan gods, generals, So another word for blessed is great, how great you are. And I want you to know that because for us as Christians, blessed has a lot of meaning to us. But if you think about what it would have meant when a Greek person would hear this word for the very first time spoken in church, they would see that this word that was usually was applied, whether you're reading Homer or Aristotle, this word was used and applied to the, to the gods, the great gods, Hercules, Zeus. Powerful beings that can destroy. And here is this word, great are the poor in spirit. A word that we be applied to power and money is being applied to the poor in spirit. Talk about an oxymoron. Great are you and incredible and powerful are you if you mourn. How powerful are you if you are meek. God is turning society on its head and redefining greatness. But just like you, when somebody says success to me, meekness is not the first word that comes to mind. But it should be. And it isn't. Jesus told a very interesting story that really gets to the crux of this. And it's in Luke chapter 18. And it's about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And really the story gets down to what it means to be poor in spirit, to mourn, and to be meek. 
starts in verse 9 of Luke 18. Talking about Jesus. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. You see that? Who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. In other words, they depended on their own self-will. They dressed up so that nobody would know and treated others with contempt. Here's Jesus, and he said, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee being those in society that were the most pious. And you got to understand about the Pharisees. The Pharisees didn't start off as, you know, the terrible people in the Bible. In fact, some of the Pharisees actually followed Jesus. What was happening in Israel is that Hellenization was actually wiping out the worship of God, the culture of being a Jew. And so the Pharisees came to be to try and bring back a level of respect, a level of gratitude and desire for God's word. But what happens is and guys, this happens in church. This is happens to us and it happened to me. We start to think that as we start to live a certain way and start to avoid certain things and not watch certain things and not say certain things, we start to, start to think of us versus them. It starts to creep in right away. And so we start off as Christians wanting to be transformed and, ha- and let everybody know about it to the point where as time goes on, we start to think that we're better. And we don't want to admit it. We say all the right words outwardly, but inside we start to say, oh, that's them and this is us. (laughs) The first night that I started working at TAC, and some of you have gone down to TAC, and I had to walk. You know, there are all these tables for those of you who don't know what TAC is. TAC is an inner city ministry that is run by the Toronto Alliance Church from the Christian Missionary Alliance. And Bill is the pastor there. And, and so we got a call. Helen and I had a call to go down and minister there for many years. And so Bill, you know, was getting us to be part of what's called community night. And all these people start coming up. If, if they weren't suffering from some kind of mental illness and schizophrenia and they were acting out because they didn't take their meds, they might have been so high that they barely could make it up the stairs. If they weren't high, they were either drunk. And if they didn't have money, they were probably just downed an entire bottle of um, the, the hand sanitizer. And then some of them were just lonely and depressed and had nobody. And so here I am walking down this aisle. Now, I am the product of immigrant parents who escaped fascism under Salazar over the mountains into France, then to Canada, and made a life. My dad would tell me stories where he didn't have social assistance back then. 
unemployment was very short. And so if you didn't have money, you know what you had to do? You'd have to go picking worms at night. They'd tie cans around their, their legs and they'd go into the fields at night and they'd be picking worms and doing this all night. Can you imagine? I remember as a little kid, I would have a meal, but my dad would be having bread with butter and a glass of water. It didn't hit me then, but it hits me now. He made sure I had the meal. And so when you grow up in a family like that, and it's all about hard work and work ethic, you walk down that aisle, you're going, man, are these people lazy or what? Did they make the wrong choices? Well, maybe you're at fault for being drunk. You shouldn't drink so much. It's your fault for taking drugs, not mine. My dad came over from fascism. He did it. He did it. You can do it. He couldn't even speak English. And you were born here. Have those thoughts ever entered your mind? Yeah. The Pharisee can creep in us as easily as it did them in that time. So how do we prevent that from being part of who we are? Let me read on. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, thus God, I thank you that I am not only like, I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like the tax collector over there. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What did Jesus say? I tell you, this man went to the house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you realize that when we criticize others or we actually put others down or judge others that we're actually exalting ourselves? We are. We are. I'm not pointing a finger at you because I, 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 I've done the same thing. It took me a year. I spent eight years down. It took me a year to realize how wrong I was. That was breaking. I mean, I was broken. God broke me big time in that ministry. I met a man who had worked all his life, talking about career, all his life, to be the best lawyer he could. And his father didn't want him to be a lawyer. For some reason, I can't remember the reason why. He'd become so well-known, he's actually called to Ottawa to be one of the lawyers that serve at the Supreme Court. Had his office in Ottawa, even made it to one of the Supreme Court cases calls his dad and says, Dad, I made it. And whatever his dad said, he never told me. He put the phone down, walked out of that office, and never went back. And I met him on Queen Street one night, on Sunday night, for a free meal.
You never know why, but God knows why. But here's, here's the secret, and it's no secret at all, of how we can transform ourselves into something, the ethos, as the Greeks say, of what God is calling us to be. Isaiah 6, 5 When Isaiah saw the Lord, he goes, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What brought Isaiah to the point? You see, when we can see something like Isaiah can, when we get to the point where we see our sinful nature, think about it. This is Isaiah the prophet. Think of the things that he has done. People listen to this guy. We read scripture that he wrote, inspired by God. And he is confessing that he has unclean lips. If anybody could probably stand up there like a Pharisee, he'd probably be one of them that we could think of. But no. And not only was he not thinking about himself, he was also thinking about his people. And woe means that he was doing something very interesting. So what is it being poor in spirit? Here we got, remember there's a triad here, right? There's nine blesseds. There's the first three. And you see, people of the ancient world didn't go in order, one, two, three. They thought outward, inward. Like throwing a pebble into water. There's the center and then there's the stuff on the outside. So we have three blessed statements and the first one is poor in spirit. That's the one I'm gonna start with. The first one on the outside. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Now you know that all of these have a spiritual implication. From a physical to a spiritual implication. It is implied here. So what is poor in spirit? Poor in spirit is this. Recognizing our own spiritual poverty. And you can only do that if you have a humble and contrite heart. That's the only way you can do that. And guess what? It only happens when you're aware of your own sinfulness. And if all I do is rely on the fact that I don't swear anymore, that I don't go out and get drunk or high anymore, and that's good enough, then I've got another thing coming to me. Because I tell you what, being in my 50s, God is still showing me things that are sinful in my life. And he never stops. But he doesn't show me today. He chose not to show me what he shows me today 20 years ago because I wasn't ready for it. And guess what? It gets a lot more complicated. And it becomes a lot easier to hide. As soon as we start to think that we have very little sin, that we've dealt with most of our sin in our life, We've knocked off these hundred. 
you won't understand what it means to be poor in spirit. You won't. Because the clay that needs to be destroyed is a constant process till the day you die. We are all sinners. All of us are sinners. Actually, I have an exercise. I need, I need, I need a couple of volunteers. Come on up. There's one. I need another volunteer. One more volunteer. Anybody? Do I need to do voluntold? Is what I do at work. Okay. If you're not going to volunteer, I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to volunteer. Come on up. Always, it's always good to pick on somebody younger. Up here. Come on up here. All right. Come on up here. I want you to stand side by side right here. This is an exercise I do with the youth. Stand right here. I want you to face that way. Face the drums. Okay? Yeah, yeah. Stand right there. Side by side. Okay. All right. Okay. We're going to judge you like the world judges you. Okay? Okay. You hate somebody and you actually went and hated somebody and hit him in the face. So you got to take one little step forward because you're worse than him because you actually <laughs> did it. From here, it looks like you guys are just side by side, no better, no worse. Right? Luke, why don't you take one little step forward? You actually almost went and hit him. You raised your fist, but you didn't. I could have all of you line up, and we could judge which, which sin is worse and which sin is better. But standing here, see, and if it's God's righteousness, it's not here. It's infinity. The little pride that may be still inside of me is as worse a sin as the male prostitute who dresses up in a bikini and goes and has sex with other men. It's the same. It's the same. Thank you. Thank you. I do this with the youth so that they get it. <laughs> you see, to God, it's all sin, guys. It's all sin. It's all sin. You have to realize how sinful you are. As soon as you start to judge somebody, you've sinned. It's funny, we get, a, we get that a lot as preachers, you know. Like sometimes I talk to Pastor Dino. People come up. You, know, you didn't interpret this right, or you said this wrong, and it's like... All the time. Actually, it's good, in a way. Don't want you to ever stop that. I used to teach newcomers class, and I used to say, guys, you know... Do what the Bible says, not what I say. And if I say something that's not in the Bible, do what the Bible says. And come and ask me. Don't come and tell me I'm wrong. Right? 
Come and ask me, what did you mean by that? Have a dialogue with me. As soon as you start to judge. As soon as you start to look down on somebody. Humility, the poor in spirit surrender. They surrender everything. They surrender everything because they realize that they still have sin in their lives. And their sin is no better and no worse than what they see on TV. Someone's sin can be a million times worse than somebody else's in your books, but for God, it's all the same. Yes, he hates certain ones more than others because of the impact it has on you and others. But for him, sin means you've missed the target because there's only one thing. You're either righteous in the eyes of God or you're not. There are two ways. Not three, not four, two. There's no purgatory. That doesn't exist. There's no temporary place where you can wait it out. And you can't pay your way out of it either. You can't work hard out of it. You can't put on a suit, clean clothes, watch your mouth, sit up straight, come to church every week and think that you're all fine and there's no sin in your life. Man, as soon as you stop thinking about what's next, Lord, you know what we should be doing? Every week we should be going, Lord, what is it that you want to change in me now? We should be asking that all the time. Lord, I'm ready. Break me more. That is a, someone who's poor in spirit. Surrendering everything. But sometimes to surrender everything means to surrender a career, money. No, I'm not asking you to give all your money to the church. Please don't, I'm not going there. I am not going there. But it might mean not putting 80 hours into work to strive for that nice executive job because God is calling you to do something else. Somebody could be going through that. I did. What are you willing to surrender? How do you see yourself? And so that is poor in spirit. You see, you cannot really understand what is meekness, and we're going to go from the outside in. You cannot understand what is meekness unless you understand what is poor in spirit. That is why it's the first thing Jesus mentions. All the other ones are meaningless unless you get this one first. Otherwise, you're like the Pharisee, and it's on deaf ears. You're going to interpret everything else in the wrong way. If you want to be meek, you got to master poor in spirit. So meek. What does meek mean? Mild, gentle, humble. Meek. First Peter 3, 4, and, and this is not popular today with a lot of feminists. You know, I, I was surfing online and uh, there's 
I came across this uh, woman. I think she's in university in, uh, I think it's in England. Not a Christian. Um, pearly something. Uh, and she's not a feminist, so it's, she, she comes from a Christian background, she admits it, but she admits she's not a Christian. She was, she was actually interviewed by, this is how I figure, she was interviewed by a pastor from, that does this really controversial, weird show called The Fallen, anyway. And uh, he, he, anyway, he's an interesting dude. We can talk about him later. Um, and uh, he likes to be controversial, and he brought this woman on, and, and, and they were just talking, and, and she says, yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not a Christian, but I do believe in God, and I grew up believing in God. And, and he goes, yeah, because a lot of your views sound Christian on YouTube, and she's a big YouTube thing now these days, right? And, and one of the ones that, that really hit big is she interviewed her friend, and her friend basically said, um, I don't want a career. I just want to be a wife. And I'm happy with that. And I think that more women would be happy if they got married and became a wife. Man, can you imagine what happened on the internet? <laughs> and, and Pearl, Pearl wants a career, but she wants to be a wife too. There's nothing wrong with having a career and being a wife. But she chose to not even have a career, and she goes, that's fine, okay, for a woman. And, and so she got all these, all these criticisms about wanting to be a wife. And she's like, I don't want to wait until I'm 30, 35. I'm young now. And, and all these people, women were criticizing her, and she was going, oh, you know, some big feminist, like she's being interviewed, she goes, you guys are all great feminists. You know, if you have male bosses, what do you say to them? I go, at least my boss is at home and I know what he says to me because he loves me and so he, he talks to me nicely. I bet you your boss at work doesn't talk to you as nicely as my boss at home. And when she talked like that, it even made him even more furious. How can you say your husband's your boss? And she wasn't a Christian either, which, which is why she was being interviewed. You're like, where did you get these ideas, right? I'll tell you where they got those ideas. They're not serving Christ right now, but they both admitted that they went to church when they were younger, so the truth is planted in them. Just a side note, guys, for your knowledge. But here's what Paul says. You want to know what meek is? 1 Peter 3, 4. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentle, the word gentle is meek, which in God's sight is very precious. This is what Paul is saying for women not to, you know, overdo it with being attractive and stuff like that. He's saying what's, what's really, what he's really looking for, what God is really looking for is a gentle, gentle heart and quiet spirit. And then look what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty nine. He uses the same word on himself. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Aren't we called to be Christ-like? For I am gentle, that's meek, the same word he used in the Sermon on the Mount. I am meek 
and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, Jesus might not have been a sinner, but he was very understanding of what it means to be poor in spirit because he had to come down from his glory to become human and have all our sins thrust on him. And it is in his death and taking our sins on the cross that we are saved. Even Christ referred to himself as lowly in heart and meek. But unless you understand the destruction of sin, unless you understand how sinful we all are, how I am, how sinful I am, Pastor Julio, you might think that my struggles are insignificant and small compared to what they were when, when I accepted Christ, but they're the same. Now we come to what is meek, it is being humble and gentle and patient, serving others with love, not judging. You know, there are many that get upset in the church and they say, well, that person did that, and this person did that, and this person upset me, and this person said that. And how dare they say this to me? If you were truly, truly self-aware of your sinfulness, if you're truly poor in spirit, you would become to a point of meekness where you would say, they did hurt me, but maybe they had a bad day. I'm going to pray for them. Maybe Pastor Julio said something to a volunteer. You know, why do you do things that way? It'd be better if you did it this way. I don't know if I've ever done that, but Given what I'm told at work, sometimes I'm like that. You can get all upset at me and rightly come and tell me that I was being insensitive. But where was your heart? Was it pointing at me first? But if you're poor in spirit, you recognize and say, hmm. Pastor Julio is just trying to do his best and trying to teach us. I'm sure he didn't mean to do that. I'm going to pray for him. And then I'm going to talk to him so that he knows and maybe doesn't do that to others. But I don't want to judge him because I've, I'm, I do just as bad things, as many bad things as he does. Do you see what I mean? That's what Jesus meant by you will know the church by how they love one another. But man, we're very good at criticizing each other. We are not meek many times. We are not meek. You see, when you understand poor in spirit, when you understand meekness, God starts to create in you a new person, a new character. And it's ongoing for the rest of your life. It becomes our spiritual character. And you see, once you understand poor in spirit, you become meek. 
you begin to mourn. And you see, mourning is about loss. And we all know what it is to mourn. I mean, I lost my dad this past year, and man, that, I mourned like I, I, I never thought I'd mourn for my dad. But the mourning and the physical takes on a spiritual aspect in the Beatitudes. But you cannot understand mourning the central of this triad unless you truly, truly are broken and poor in spirit. Unless you truly are meek, gentle, and of lowly heart like Christ was. Then you begin to understand what mourning is. Let me give you some some scripture before we move on. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2. This is Paul speaking. Here is the church in Corinth allowing somebody who is sinning to continue on. Being poor in spirit and being meek doesn't mean that if you see somebody sinning, you just let them continue on going. Like when the guy walked into my office dressed in a bikini asking me if it was wrong in a very gentle way, I had to explain to him it was wrong. You know, I didn't get my Bible and whack him over the head and kick him out and say, go put some clothes on and then come back and talk to me. I had to sit there and talk with this guy while he's in a bikini in front of me with lipstick on. You know, it's like, so what I do, I opened up scripture. And, and I started talking to him about the love of God. How God loves him. And how he desires for him to have a relationship with God. And that's the most important thing. And then he asked me, but, but is it wrong? And I said, the Bible says that God wants you to be the person he created you to be. And that is a man. Because I find it so hard. I know. I struggle too with certain things. I could not have said that in the first year I started there. I couldn't have had that conversation with him. I began to understand what poor in spirit is. And I understand. We, taught, we, we prayed today about Novlet and Brother Hanford going to Jamaica. I had no idea why God called me downtown. But God called me downtown to teach me what poor in spirit really meant. And I'm still learning every day. And here is Paul about sin in the church. He says, And you are arrogant. Ought you not to rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. You see, we've got to be poor in spirit and meek, but still corrective. We still have to be corrective in love. And if somebody continues on to want to sin again and again and again and again, at one point in time, you do have to remove them. I don't know how long it is, the spirit guides. Before TAC, before even the first time I stepped into this church, I used to go to a different church downtown, and it was a Pentecostal church, Portuguese-speaking church, and two women who were lesbian started coming to our church. 
And so we started talking as a leadership member, what are we going to do? Half of the elders at the time were going, wow, we better correct them and tell them they've got to do their one way, split up, one stay here and one go to another church. You know, they were already starting to, boom, this is what we got to do. You know, and through prayer, we said, no, we're going to let them stay. So what are we going to do? We are going to pray for them. And we are going to preach to them God's love. About two years, six months went by, and only one of them started showing up. And the one that started showing up said, I can't live like that. And I decided to split up, and my lesbian partner couldn't take it, so she left. One got saved, the other one didn't. But we didn't kick them out. Had we had kicked them out and told them to separate, would one of them have been saved? No. No. They were eagerly seeking. They weren't in the church defiantly. Okay? If all of a sudden I started to preach that being gay is okay, like it's happening in, in England, that's defiance. You kick me out. And use, use a steel-toed boot, too. Like, don't even wait. Okay? I know better, and you know that I know better. So being meek means understanding. And so Paul is saying, what's happening here? These guys know better. And he said you should be mourning. You get that? Mourning. What does mourning mean? You should be sad, crying. Because when you discipline, when you have to discipline in this way, it's mournful. It should hurt. You shouldn't be glad that you have to kick somebody out of church. You should mourn. When, when somebody in church falls, do we say, what did you do? Did you stop praying? Were you praying without faith? You stop reading the Bible, there you go. Or do you mourn? You should mourn. We should always mourn when somebody struggles with sin. Men, we meet as men. And if statistics are right, anywhere from a quarter to a third or maybe more of men struggle with pornography. We should be mourning that and making it front and center. That's what mourning means. Is not being a Pharisee, but really, really crying out for someone who's struggling. Second Corinthians 12, I fear, verse 21, I fear that when I come again, my, my God may humble me. This is Paul again before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual morality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Paul knew what it was to mourn. You know that pain when you lose somebody so close? That's the type of pain Paul felt. Do you feel that kind of pain when you see a Christian struggle? I think if we mourned more, people would probably be a little bit more open with their own struggles because they know when they'd come to us we would mourn and pray with them. We would empathize with them and we'd want to help them. 
Psalm 119, 136 says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Do your eyes shed streams of tears? When we pray, do we pray that there are people who struggle with sin and who need our help? You see, mourning is the central here. When you mourn, you understand your sinfulness. You're, you're, you're poor in spirit. You know that there is brokenness. You know that there is a sadness for the struggles that you have and a sadness for the struggles that other people have. And that the world is broken and the world needs Christ. You start to pray for those, your neighbors, your co-workers, your co-students. You start to mourn for them. But you see, with all the Beatitudes comes a promise. Do you see that? Jesus doesn't leave us in poor in spirit. He doesn't leave us in just in meekness. He doesn't just leave us in mourning. He says that when we mourn, something beautiful will come. When we mourn, we will be comforted. When we realize we're poor in spirit, we will inherit the kingdom of God. When we're meek, we will be strengthened. We will be given the kind of strength and power for the kingdom that God wants us to have. And guess what? Then we can be bold and courageous the way God wants us to be. Then we can have the chat with the person who may come in one day, either in rags, smelling like they've peed in their pants, and they stink, and you gotta sit there with them stinking by your seat, just like you do on the TTC. Would you be willing to do that? I tell ya, I did some really interesting things working downtown. I had one guy come in once, and he had nothing from the waist down, except for a bag, you know, the yard bags that he had ripped and put around him. He had passed out and come to the church, and when he passed out, somebody had taken his pants, his underwear, his socks, everything. He shows up at church. In the middle of church! We had to take him to the back and find him some pants. One time, one guy came in, and I remember a few of us from the church, and he had just peed his pants. He stunk. And a couple of the men and I undressed him, took off his wet, peed pants, underwear. We cleaned them up. I got an appreciation for what my, my daughter's doing. She's starting to become a nurse. Are we willing to be merciful? You see, to get to that point, we must do something. To get to the point where we're able to have that character, ongoing, ever building, there's something that has to happen with us first. And, and the clue can be seen here with Moses in Exodus when Moses sees the burning bush climbs up on the mountain he seeks God but when he sees the burning bush something happens God speaks out and he says don't come near me first thing that he says 
to take off your sandals. And three, because the ground on which you're on is holy. See, the sandals represented something that Moses had to take off. Something had to throw away. Moses had been on the run for 40 years. When he said to take off your sandals, remove that which you depend on. Remove that which is holding you back. You are on holy ground. You see, just like Isaiah, when he said, woe is me, for I am lost. This is the thing that astonishes me the most. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. I was here worshiping God. I felt his presence and, and tears were coming to my eyes. Yet there are times that I judge rather than the meek. And so, this is what we need to do. We need to do what Moses did. There are things in our lives that impede us from being poor in spirit. And just like Moses, today, while you're on holy ground, you need to take them off. There are things in our lives that we don't see as sinful and are. And what I'm feeling is, is I'm feeling the Spirit give me some examples for you. Some of them might be cultural. Cultural expectations, this is the way it should be done. There is no cultural should be in the Bible. There is no cultural should be in heaven. There is no this is the way we do things. That is sin. Don't think that it is not. It is because when you put that ahead of God's word, you are sinning. I was talking to my daughter about a, a, a young couple at another church that had wanted to get married for nine years. And the parents kept saying no. You're not ready. The Bible says they're ready. The Bible says that they will join together and leave mom and dad. It's not by their cultural standards that they have spent five years, saved up $100,000, and now they can get married. That is sinful. There are others that may be thinking the same way that I did, 
coming over from a different country and saying, hey, I, I made it here through the worst situation. You should see what it's like when I came from. And when you see people downtown, you criticize. That is sin, people. You might not like to hear it, but it is sin. It was sin when I thought it. It is sin for you to think it. No, no person's brokenness is bigger or lesser in God's eyes. And we should mourn. We should mourn. Are we ready today to take off our sandals? I mean, if you really want to take off your shoes and come before the altar, that's fine. I've seen people do that. But that's not what I mean. Are the things that you no longer want to confront, the things that you've been avoiding to confront that are stopping you from truly being broken and poor in spirit, are you ready to deal with them today? Because that is what God is calling us to. That is the Sermon on the Mount. That is what mean, means to be poor in spirit and meek and mourning. You see, Jeremiah. <laughs> Jeremiah 9 talks about, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes fountains of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. In the same way that Jeremiah cried out and mourned for his people again and again and again, we need to mourn for each other. We need to mourn for each other. But here's the promise. Just like the promise in the Beatitudes, in verse 31, God says this, Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the, war, the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for the future, declares the Lord. You see, we are his chosen vessels. Can you imagine what would happen if we all entered into that state where we realized our brokenness and we shed off those things that are holding us back and we, we gave them to the Lord, we took off the sandals as we came near the Lord and we started to see things differently and we start to mourn from one another. You see, that's like a lighthouse with sort of dirty glass, putting some Windex on it, shining it. What happens? The light shines through even brighter. And God wants to shine through you even brighter. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. So I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to pray. I'm going to call the musicians up. We're going to pray.